Hunger is a primal force that has driven humanity since the dawn of time. We are hungry creatures. Recently, I've been experimenting with with others in this congregation with the practice of intermittent fasting, where one limits their eating to a specific time window and sometimes even just to one meal a day. And as I I begin to reflect on it. It's kind of a privilege that we can do that, right? That we, that we can skip meals is, is really a privilege because there's many people in the world who intermittent fasting is their daily reality, right? They're lucky if they get one meal a day. And much of history has been the same way. Subsistence cultures lived very close to the land, right? If the crop didn't come in, then you were eating last year's crop, right? And you hopefully weren't greedy and you had saved things over, but you were much more intimately connected with the ground and the fruit of the ground, and you lived hand to mouth. You lived day by day looking for your daily bread. We pray, give us our daily bread, and yet I have enough food in my house to feed me for months, right? I'm not necessarily worried about tomorrow's bread. It's, it's there already. So we don't quite, it's hard for us to enter in and get a sense of what it's like when somebody feeds you. And not just feeds you, not just gives you something so you taste something, but feeds you so you're full. And there are leftovers. Now imagine you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. And that man, Jesus, feeds you. What are you going to think of him? What are you going to want from him. Why would you pursue him? Well, in many ways, it would be so that you can get fed again. So long as the bread continues, then he can be your king. If he can't continue to supply bread, then maybe he's not fit to be a king. You notice at the end of verse 15 that they tried to press him into service as their king. We want to be fed. And freebies and handouts, they drive elections, do they not? Some political parties run on this all the time. and It doesn't really matter if it's economically workable. The promise of bread leads to votes. But Jesus evaded the crowd and then escaped unnoticed to the other side of the sea, much to the crowd's dismay. And when they find Jesus on the next day in the synagogue, Jesus seizes that opportunity to correct their tendency to follow their bellies. There is much more at stake in following Jesus than feeding your belly. Now, if you're, if you're able, please stand with me as we read together from the Gospel according to John. We're continuing in chapter 6. We'll begin this morning at verse 22 and read to verse 29. Let me remind you that these are the words of God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious and almighty God, we give you thanks, Father, for this your word. And we would search our hearts to determine whether we are coming, whether we are seeking Jesus so that we can eat and be full, or whether we will seek Jesus for eternal life. To know uh, the Father through Jesus. May we come and see Him exalted and reigning. To see the One who gives His life as bread for the world. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. And Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Just to summarize, just to give you a summary of what's happening here. Verse 22 through 24 really give us the behind the scenes picture of how it is that the crowd discovered that Jesus was no longer on the other side of the sea. Apparently, they had stayed around waiting for him. Now, remember, after they had tried to press him to be their king, he escaped up further onto the mountain to be alone with God. And then the disciples, after he did not come, they left in a boat, a single boat on their own. It's only in the middle of the night during the storm-tossed seas that Jesus comes to his disciples in the boat, right? And then they are brought into their safe haven, to their desired destination. God, through Jesus Christ, had brought them through the sea. They had passed in a new exodus uh, from the deep darkness into the light. And so... The crowd is questioning, how did this happen? We saw only one boat leave. We know Jesus was not on that boat. How did you come to be in the synagogue on the other side of the sea? And Jesus is not really interested in answering the how. He's more interested in why. Why are you seeking me? Why have you gone all the way out of your way to come and find me? What is motivating you? What's driving you to come and seek me? That's what Jesus is interested in. In fact, the text that we read today is really the introduction to a longer sermon. John tells us in verse 58 of chapter 6 that all of this discussion happens in the synagogue. This is all one sermon unfolding that we're going to look at over the next month. And this is really just the introduction of the sermon. And like all good introductions, Jesus lays out the problem. What's the problem? The problem is that the people are seeking Jesus, not because they saw a sign, but because they ate and are full. Jesus wants them to examine their hearts. What's motivating them to come and to seek Jesus? And so Jesus lays out the problem, and it sort of falls neatly into two parts. These address the problem of seeking the wrong kind of bread. And he then begins to provide clues that, of course, they misunderstand on how to find the right kind of bread. 
And so we'll look first at seeking the wrong kind of bread, and then we'll look at what Jesus provides as an alternative. Whenever Jesus speaks, we obviously should pay attention, but especially when he says, truly, truly, or amen, amen. I've used this illustration before, but it's like a mom. When she grabs her child very gently and delicately by the cheeks, both cheeks, she focuses his attention on her and she says, this is important. I want you to do this. That's what Jesus is doing. He's grabbing you by the cheeks and he's saying, listen to me. What I'm about to tell you is of vital importance for your soul. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, it's not necessarily that they're seeking him that that's a problem. That's not the problem. The problem is why? What's the motivation? What's driving them to come and to seek Jesus? And it's because they ate and are full. Now, I, I, I tried to put you in that scene, but imagine, imagine maybe that was the first meal you've ever had where you were full. Imagine that you had never had a meal that satisfied you like that. But amazing as that was, it was not the reason that Jesus fed them. That wasn't the reason. The reason was not so that they would be Fed and full. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus didn't care about their physical needs, right? Often, our mercy ministry needs to go hand in hand with our proclamation of the gospel. We try to reach out and meet the needs of people so that we can gain an audience for the gospel. Because sometimes people cannot hear if their belly is still hungry. But rather... Like everything in this life, in especially this fallen world, the physical must be put in its proper order and place. Before we address our tendency to seek Jesus for the wrong reasons, I want to unpack what Jesus means by seeking Jesus because we saw the signs. You see, he sets it out as a contrast. You're not seeking me because you saw the signs. You're seeking me because you saw you ate and are full. What does it mean then to seek Jesus because we saw the signs? What is a sign? Signs signify. They point to a deeper reality. With Jesus' signs, which all the other gospel writers call miracles, they authenticate his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. Signs, you know of a stop sign, it, it signifies that when you come to that point, you need to stop. Signs in the Bible are really more like a barricade, right? They force you to stop, right? So the idea is that what is presented on the outside has deeper implications. It manifests and reveals something about the person who is doing the sign. The signs performed by Jesus were were not just mere acts of healing or feeding. The people went on and died. Even Lazarus, which we'll come to in, in John 14, died again. And the lame man, though he was healed and was able to walk, eventually died. Right? And eventually the crowd, after they were fed, they get hungry again. But Jesus, the sign of feeding 
the 5,000 was meant to point to something much deeper. The crowd may have been drawn to the wilderness to find Jesus because of signs, healings. Remember, John doesn't mention all of the signs. He said there's too many. I could write books and books and books about all the signs that Jesus did. Other gospel writers call them miracles. We know at this time, Jesus is healing thousands of people. Right? They're just coming in contact with him and they're being healed. And so the crowd is seeking him because of that. They want to be fed. They want to be healed. They want to experience the new creation. Right? That's what Jesus is showing us. He's peeling back the curtain and showing this is what life should be like if there were no sin. And that's why I came. I came to deal with sin. I came to bring wholeness and restoration to usher in that, that shalom, that peace. But the problem is the, the crowd saw the sign, but they missed what the sign pointed to. They missed what the sign signified. And when we looked at that sign a few weeks ago, and I unpacked all the clues, you remember that it led the crowd to determine this is the prophet. And we said that Jesus was identifying himself as a new Moses, one who was going to lead his people in a second exodus. He was the prophet that Moses had spoke of. He was a new and better Moses come to lead his people in a new exodus. But as Israel had before, in the first exodus, they, they missed all that. They missed the point of that. They think of the fulfillment of God's promise only in terms of this world. Bread falls right in line with their misplaced hopes that the Messiah would come and vindicate their suffering by liberating them from Roman oppression. They think the Messiah is going to come and deliver them from this worldly problems. Well, that, that was certainly a threat, and, and it, but it wasn't the greatest threat. The greatest threat was being alienated from God. But just as they misunderstood the purpose for the law, and as they missed all that Moses, the exodus, and the bread from heaven were all designed to point to Jesus Christ. They were all signposts signifying that there would be a person who would come and lead his people in a greater exodus who would deliver them from oppression and bondage, not just from slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin and death, that he would lead his people out into the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. But Israel missed that when they, when they went through those events, and, and Israel in this crowd is seeming to miss it again. They follow Jesus because they heard he had bread. But we do the same thing. Hunger is such a, a fitting metaphor for our pursuit of satisfaction. For human flourishing. We are hungry for relational connections. And we need love. We need to be known by somebody. But we end up settling for illicit sex. Sex unmoored from marriage and procreation. That kind of sex only makes us more empty. We want to feel whole, which we think education might fulfill. So we get degrees. We hunger for affirmation for others, so we pursue careers and money and fame, or we just settle for likes and hearts. 
We crave and we crave, but we are never satisfied. Our eyes are never satisfied with seeing. Could you say to yourself today, I've saw, I've saw it all. I don't need to see any longer. And then just, that's it. No, we want to see more. Our hands are never satisfied with feeling, our tongue with tasting, our hearts with experiencing. And because underneath all of the desires lies a hunger for God. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. All your desires, which we point to earthly things, are really masked desires for God. For that intimacy and that relationship with Him. And bread will never be enough. It can be good, but it will never be enough. But again, this this text was not written so that we can point at the Jews and scoff at how foolish they were not to see. For in truth, we are are experts at doing the very same thing. Why is the prosperity gospel even a heresy? Why is, it, why is it so attractive? Why are millions of people flocking to that presentation of a so-called gospel? Why can Joel Osteen pack a stadium with 20,000 people? Because our belly is a more immediate need than whatever remains out of sight in the future. Ultimately, what drives these things is that we somehow get the perverse idea that, that, G, that we can get Jesus to do what we want Him to do. That we can press Him into our service. We'll make Him king so that we have bread forever. And this distorted view of faith reduces Jesus to a genie in a bottle ready to grant our every wish and desire. And I've spoken to you about uh, uh, the sociologist Christian Smith who discovered as he interviewed teenagers, millennials particularly, that about their faith. And he determined that what they actually believed he called moralistic therapeutic deism. God exists, but he, he really doesn't care about the details of your life. He rewards those who are good, as in nice. But there's no mention of punishment for sin or judgment. And he's he's really only there if you need him. He's like a divine butler. You can call out and he'll, he'll come and he'll deliver you and bless you. If you're good, meaning nice. But Jesus warned of seeking this kind of bread. He warned about having bad motivations in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, In in chapter 6, verse 25 of Matthew, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why are you seeking Christ? Why have you come here this morning? Do you know? Do you know what drives you to Christ? Do you know why you're here? Do you know the motivations of your own heart? Have you searched them? Have you tried them? Have you asked yourself, why am I seeking Christ? Is it because I ate the bread and I'm full? Or because I want eternal life? You see, Jesus continues in verse 27. He lays out an alternative goal for the bread-seeking crowd. He doesn't leave them to grope around just to fill their bellies. He points them in the right direction. And he says in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Jesus issues an imperative not to work for bread that perishes. See, every teenage boy. Jesus said, don't work. It's right there. He's not meaning that you should quit your jobs and stop bringing home pay. The operative word is perishes. Don't merely work for the bread that perishes. The bread that is temporary. Jesus is saying it's not he who dies with the most toys wins. That's a mistaken goal in life. Some of you really do struggle to dethrone the idol of security, the God of mammon. The sign of feeding the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and its attendant sermon are meant to unsettle those who continue to operate with worldly logic. That it's a zero-sum game, right? We think of the world like pie dough. It's getting rolled out and it's getting thinner and thinner and thinner. The more of God's stuff is spread out, the less there is for me. But that's not how God operates. That's not how God operates in Scripture. That's not the logic of the kingdom. The logic of the kingdom goes like this. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Proverbs 11.24 Or like this, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God gives you the seed. He gives you the seed so that you can give it out. He gives you a lot of seeds. You can give a lot out. And when you give a lot out, he gives you more to give out. He's the one that will enrich you in every way so that you can be generous in every way. Why? All to the praise of God. And the end of it, it's not you getting the glory. It's God getting the glory. 
He gave it to you, and you say, thanks be to God, and you give it out. And if you're always inwardly calculating, counting every gift and tallying up every cent spent, you have missed the fact that God has enriched you for a purpose. And it wasn't to be calculated, it was to be generous. If you're having a hard time here, start with your wife and your family. Just give of yourself. And don't even think about the cost of it. And then do the same to the Lord. Bring what is His into the tithe and offering and give it to Him. Watch what He will do. The faithful Christian life does not pencil out on paper. I cannot afford to be a pastor with eight kids. That doesn't make sense to the world. Why would you do that? But in God's kingdom logic, I have never wanted for anything, nor have my children ever been without their daily bread. Because God has blessed us. We never had enough money. We probably never will. Thanks be to God. God is faithful to give to his people. And that's the lesson he's trying to get them to see. It's not about feeding yourself. It's not about even worrying about your daily bread. It's about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things come when you reorientate your life away from working for the bread that spoils, that perishes, and instead you work for the bread that endures for eternal life. Well, what what is eternal life? And how do we work for that? I want to give you two texts from John that help us to unpack the meaning of eternal life. One from the gospel and one from his first epistle. The first is from John 17.3, from his high priestly prayer. Jesus prays this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then again, John reiterates in his epistle, his first epistle, 1 John 5.20. And he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. How do you, what is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God. And of course, this is consistent with the promise that God gave to Jeremiah in the New Covenant. From the least to the greatest, all shall know the Lord. In his epistle, John makes clear we know God because we are in His Son. We're united to Him. We are clothed in Him. The Son who is from the Father and full of grace and truth, who is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus makes the Father known to us, not in a way that diminishes His divinity, but in a way that establishes it. But then how, if eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ, how do we work for that? And the crowd questions Jesus. They're still a bit puzzled. What must we do to be doing the works of God? That is, what do we have to do to get eternal life kind of bread? And that's easy, Jesus said. Believe in Him whom He has, he has sent. 
Eternal life is knowing God, but as has already become clear throughout John's gospel, knowing God, knowledge of facts, it's not just knowledge of facts. It's belief. It's, a, it's only by faith can we know God. Further, only by faith in Christ, the one God sent, can one know God. For knowledge of God comes through the Son, who came for this very purpose to make the Father known. And given this thicker description of eternal life, we can, we can go back and restate Jesus' admonition this way. To those who cease their endless striving after life that inevitably will perish, I will give the gift of faith by revealing the Father to you so that you know Him, which is eternal life. Stop seeking the bread that can never lead you to me. But instead, come to me, believe in me, trust in me, have confidence in me. And that's not even a work that you can do on your own. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shines His light of His glory in Jesus' face so that in seeing Jesus, you see God's glory shining. And that is eternal life. What more could we ever ask for than to be in the presence of God and to see Him? That theologians call the beatific vision. To behold Him. To see God because we are like Him. Because through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we can stand unashamed in His presence, not hiding ourselves with our fig leaves, but because we have been restored to that place of honor through Jesus Christ. And it's in beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus that we in this life are transformed so that in the next we can see His glory. We come to the Father through Jesus, His Son. The Father, Christ said, has set His seal on the Son, meaning that He has authenticated or guaranteed His right to give the the gift of eternal life. The way to access that gift is by believing in the Son. So what you should be doing to do the work of God is trust the Son. So circling back around to the start, we see the signs Jesus did. They should have led to faith. They should have led to faith in His person and His work. Not a superficial desire for the signs themselves. If we don't look at these signs and see the glory of God shining in Jesus' face, then we are like the crowd who seeks Jesus because they ate the bread and were full. Jesus offers you eternal life as a gift. A gift, by the way, that satisfies the hungry soul. Famished because we we don't know God. So seek Jesus, but examine your heart to see what motivates you to seek Him. Often in our modern secular age, we have followed the culture in seeking other means to satisfy that hunger. 
And the unfortunate effect of that is that it has masked that hunger. We don't recognize the, the hunger pains. We think, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, I, I, I want to watch a Netflix show. Oh, I, I really want to read a good book. Oh, I'm craving a face-to-face relationship with someone. All those things are good. But they oftentimes mask the real hunger that's at the roots of our hearts. That is that we desire to know God through Jesus Christ. So try this. Take a break. Take a break from something that you normally use to satisfy a hunger. Whatever that is, for however long. And cultivate that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Cultivate that desire for God. That desire to know Him. And then pray that God would give you a deeper hunger to know Him and Jesus Christ, His Son. Amen? Let's pray together. Father and God, we are overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy. You have extended to us the gift of eternal life in your Son, Jesus. And we have seen your glory shining in his face. And Father, as we're reminded today, not to seek the bread that perishes, but to pursue and to deepen and to long for and desire after your to know you, to know you through your Son, Jesus. Give us a hunger after righteousness and cause us to seek first your kingdom. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. And amen.